0: This is Reimagining Higher Education, your go-to podcast with remarkable education leaders sharing personal stories from their experience in and around the sector, including reflection and hope for progress in the sector. With your host, Professor Judith Sachs, former PVC learning and teaching at the University of Sydney, Deputy Vice-Chancellor and Provost at Macquarie University, and Special Advisor in Higher Education at KPMG, and now Chief Academic Officer at Studiosity. Welcome. I'm introducing Professor Margaret Scheel, the uh, Vice-Chancellor and President of QUT. Margaret's had a very illustrious career, both as uh, Provost at the University of Melbourne, but also in charge of the ARC. And you've just um, finished uh, a review of the ARC, which I'm sure was extraordinarily challenging and interesting. But look, before we start, what would you say about Margaret Scheel? Oh. uh Look I, I,
1: I don't know, Judith, I think i've'm' I've, I've, um, I've always been a curious person. and so one of the things that i I think I've always been uh, characterized everything I've done uh, is i've I've gone into and tried to understand something at some point and um, and and some and often taken a, a a risk in in going there. you know, so I, I think I'm a courageous person and I think I'm a curious person. And I think those two things together mean that I've gone down pathways or avenues or done things that other people mightn't have done either because they were less curious or because they were less courageous.
0: So when I contacted you, I asked you to bring an object that provided the basis of um, your uh, understanding you as an educator and as a leader. What, what, What have you got? Look,
1: I guess, I mean, I guess I'd bring my phone because I'm always Googling or always checking. And, you know, I used to, um, as a a child or a teenager, we didn't have an encyclopedia, but the people next door did. So I spent half of my life going into the next door neighbours and borrowing various um, encyclopedias to learn stuff. So I guess uh, I would bring a phone or a book that said I was reading or trying to understand or get information about something so that I
0: could understand something better or do something better. So you, and that now links in with your your comment earlier about being curious. So talk to me a little bit about how curiosity has framed you both as a scholar, an educator, and a leader. Right. So I think
1: one of the things that um, i I've always tried to you know I, I want to learn about things, so and that's always been my my kind of modus operandi and whether it's learning about the people so sort of understanding where people are coming from or being curious about why things were the way they were you know and and so i think um one of the things that um i i i was curious uh, i when i was cleaning out uh, some of my stuff we'd had a a small flood in the group floods and i I went through the books that were my sort of childhood books, and and I found this. My third grade prize for coming first in third grade was a book called Let's Experiment. So so this kind of tendency to want to understand something had clearly been there from a very young age, um, and so I guess and 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 educating others meant that then I would sort of try and understand something and then once i would understood something i then want to explain it to people and say you know this or you know that and so we're as a leader then i i, I tend to not take things on face value i will um and i sometimes surprise people because they go oh how could you want that level of detail but often i want that level of detail to understand it and then once i understand it i'll back off and go okay that's good i don't need to keep seeing that detail but I do need to understand it. And then once I understand something, I find it very easy to explain to others. So I found that with the pandemic, that because I could understand the science of what was happening, it helped me explain the consequences to people as we were making decisions.
0: So do you think that that sort of mindset of curiosity was part of the basis of why you became a chemist or why you studied chemistry? I think it was why I did science rather than medicine, for sure. Um,
1: uh, and I just did chemistry because um, it—I didn't just do chemistry, but uh, I had a good chemistry teacher at school. That's often the case. Um, I actually liked maths, but I couldn't see the practical bit of maths enough to want to pursue maths. And um, and I thought chemistry was sort of. I found chemistry more interesting than physics, so that was the kind of the choice. So it was by elimination. <laughs> yeah, it was a little bit of by elimination. Yes, yeah, so, so um, but uh, and chemistry suited me for that reason. And it is, you know, they don't call it the central science for nothing. It is the science that allows you to then both uh, work in and understand physics, but also biology, and, and and also it's got a kind of quantitative aspect that means that you can deal with data and complexity of data as well.
0: So what was your undergraduate experience like? Well you know it wasn't
1: as glory days as people talk about it was pretty woeful really in terms of the facilities uh, um, in, in terms of um, you know people talk about the, the they remember university in these golden days but it was really that was in the Fraser government and um, in the period post Fraser and where universities didn't have a lot of money, and so it was it was fine in terms of the content and the and the uh, you know what I'd learned. I learnt, had a very good um, education, but it wasn't um, uh, you know the building was bleak. Uh, there were a lot of um, uh, the you know UNSW was a very um, uh, wasn't a beautiful campus at all at that stage. Um, so that bit wasn't um, that great. Um, in terms of my own ex- my actual experiences, we I did a lot of extracurricular stuff. I, I ran the UNSW baseball softball club. I was the president of students' chemistry society. So I was doing the um, the kind of the other dimensions as well. Um, and then, but in terms of my actual education, I mean it was fine. It was just not. Um, it wasn't, um, uh, you know, it it wasn't too different to what I was teaching my own students, you know, 10 years later or probably what had happened the 10 years before. It wasn't bad in any way, but it wasn't, you know, people would talk about the universities that they knew and the small classes and the good old days. It, well, it wasn't like that. It was much more like our current experiences.
0: And what about your postgraduate experience?
1: Uh, well, that was quite different. So we had... Um, uh I, um, I did my PhD with a guy who was the, he came to UNSW as, uh, you know, in those days you could only be a professor if you were appointed or you'd been there for life. And he was the young professor that was brought in from the probe. He was only 35 when he was made a professor. He um, he had um, uh, a big, a lab that was sort of world-class connected with the best people in my discipline and around the world. So I had a pretty good postgraduate experience, a very good postgraduate experience, I realise, in retrospect, because I had such a, um, uh, such a uh, both a very good lab, because he had brought with him six PhD students from Trobe, and then a couple of the other bright students from UNSW and I all joined the lab. And he was a really interesting and extraordinary scientist. He was a terrible you know, politician, but he was a great scientist, and I learned a lot. Um, but in, the, in 1986, so, so just about towards... How about... Um, he came from the tribe with a big mass spectrometer, um, and we worked on that. And then just towards the end of my PhD, he was offered a job at Warwick. And so he... Then left and went to Warwick, um, and I was me and some of the others. We were left to kind of write up on our own, um, which was good in a way because it meant we finished. And and you know we sent our pieces over to him in chapters, and he would write read them and send them back. But um, it it meant that I had no security blanket then to to hang around. I had to go and get a postdoc and get going. Um, and there was. Um, which was fine because I, I did, and I went off to America, and you know um, that worked out okay. Whereas at that stage, a lot of people would sort of hang around and do a bit more work as a postdoc or something in their lab. Um, and uh, but Pete left and went to Warwick, so that was um, that was kind of unusual. Your PhD supervisor doesn't often pack up and take your mass spectrometer out from under you, which it literally. <laughs>
0: So when, when you think back on that, both your PhD experience and your postdoctoral experience, what did you take from that that you then used as part of your toolkit of being a young academic?
1: Well, because Peter wasn't very different to us in age. I mean, he was, um, I, mean, he was I don't know, 10, 12. You know, he was like the young gun in the department, right? And then he became the head of school and... Um, so I learned a lot about, um, and then I was the student postgraduate rep and the president of the Student Society, Chemistry Society. So I learned a lot about how universities ran through the fact that uh, we were working for the head of school. And the head of school, and of course I was sort of interested in people and a good organiser, I, I, I knew about what, a lot about what was going on. So I had a pretty good sense of university politics, which helped with it, with the, uh, lab or with my young academic. But the other thing I learned a lot from Peter about, and those experiences both there and um, my um, postdoc about forging a new area of research independent of your supervisor and what you'd done before. So I learned to take what I'd done as a PhD student, did as a postdoc and then created my research program at Wollongong, which was why I was really successful early on in getting grants because I I, I learned how to synthesise that in a way that quite often early career researchers still end up doing what they did, you know, following on from their supervisor. And that's that ultimately doesn't help you because you've got to take the best from each place and, and meld that together and identify good opportunities. And Peter was very good at seeing the big opportunity in the big picture. And I learned a lot about how that worked and how to pull that together.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that built on the curiosity and the, and the being courageous?
1: Yeah, yeah, because just as another example. So when, um, uh, so. Peter left and went to the UK, and so the, the, there was a couple of other academics in the school who were notionally my supervisors or my on-the-ground supervisors. And this might sound like a big jump to Judith, but I, my PhD was in physical chemistry, and so the idea was that you go and work for a top physical chemist, you know. Anyway, um, meanwhile, a guy who was a biological guy had visited the lab and he wrote to me and offered me a... if you want to do a postdoc with me come and do that and 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 so i wrote to him and he offered me a job and we went um but everyone's like but but you're doing physical chemistry what are you doing going to work in a pharmacy school right but so i went and worked in in what was called the medicinal chemistry department doesn't sound like a big jump but it was Mm -hmm. and then i and then i came back um and sort of pulled those two strands together and, um, again, it was this idea about not necessarily just doing the same thing. It was taking a jump. And and I got there to the medicinal chemistry and the department in, in, in America, and I, I didn't know a lot of stuff because it was actually quite out of my field. But then I knew a lot of stuff they didn't know, as it turned out, so it worked out. But I didn't – that was a bit of a – it would have been much more traditional to, say, go and work with one of the – top physical chemists in the field, or um, quite a lot of people said, well, why don't you follow Peter to the UK? Well, I've learned from him. I don't need to go do that again. Um, mm-hmm. and so um, I took forged out in a different direction. And then, and then um, again, came back to Australia when everyone said, oh, there's never going to be any money for research. And it just happened that things started to move when I got back. So, timing was important, it was, yeah, and I brought back to Australia some things that other people not hadn't sort of experienced, and I went to the a for a year and again, everyone said, uh, you know, just stay here and I went and I got offered the job at Wollongong, and I went to Wollongong, and everyone's going, "What are you doing that for?" And I said, "Well, it feels like a good environment, and Wollongong was fabulous in that 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 experience. And yeah, so at each step, I took a step that not was what people expected, you know mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So and that's the. Case. So,
0: what's what's important to you as as an educator?
1: Um, creating opportunities for people who wouldn't otherwise have them. Right, and so so if I think about my career, what I've done throughout all my career, regardless of whether it's been in research or education, it's been to provide opportunities. To bring excellence to a broader range of people, to 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 allow uh, those who 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 wouldn't otherwise have the opportunity have the opportunity to shine or excel, and so whether that's creating opportunities for kids in Wollongong who are first in family and and you know would wander into your office and say I'm thinking about doing science but I don't really know what that looks like or whether it's, you know, promoting uh, uh, opportunities for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander academics or women who in non-traditional areas. I think what's always driven is that that sense that I had a great, even though I said, you know, it was a bit bleak at UNSW in the early 80s, but I, had, I still had a very good education. I had a very good high school education. I had opportunities that others wouldn't necessarily have had, and I want to ensure that the greatest number of people have those opportunities.
0: So were there particular opportunities that you took advantage of?
1: Um, look, I think I, um, uh, I, mean, I, I mean, I had opportunities to, to, um, I think I took opportunities with risks and I backed myself. So, but I, I, I I did that knowing that I was going into an environment where I was going to be able to, to utilise those opportunities. So, yeah, I mean, I didn't, um, um, my, my you know, my father was an engineer, my mother was a nurse, I, my brothers had been to university before me. There wasn't, I wasn't a um, first in family kind of not, um, I came First in my high school, it was just down the road from the University of New South Wales, so it's accessible. So I had opportunities to um, to learn and to do things, but I, I, I it wasn't in you know I, I don't want to pretend I had some kind of uh, uh, that that there was adversity in that. There was rebellion because I didn't do medicine and because I didn't do other things that people expected of me. Um, but then I had great um, I would um, uh, you know, Wollongong at the time that I was there was really flourishing, had great leadership. They were given, we were given opportunities. We've talked about the characters of, characteristics of different institutions and, and it backed you if you were prepared to back yourself. So I think those opportunities of people backing me to do things, um, uh, whether it was the head of school or the vice chancellor or the people who, who supported me for the ARC, um, I've tried to do that for others, I think, or, or for students, you know, in, in supporting and supervising and teaching them. And...
0: If we can just move on to the sort of the current context of higher education, it could be said we're at, in Australia, we're at an inflection point with the Accord and with your review of the ARC. And everything that I've read about your review of the ARC it is both courageous, but it's also strategic and forward-looking. So do you want to talk to me about what you think the challenges are it, facing university in the short and the midterm?
1: Sure.
0: So, um, so we called the AIC
1: um, uh, review Trusting Australia's Ability, and we... That name is quite deliberate because it's built on the idea that the last really, really big injection of funding into research in Australia was through the two backing Australian ability initiatives in the early 2000s. But the, the trusting Australia's ability is really about trusting that we have incredible talent. We, there's no need to be culturally cringed about what we've got in our higher educational research sector. And, uh, and if we trust that talent, we can continue to thrive, and there has been a period in different times of government of not trusting the universities or the talent that we have. So that's the one thing. That's the sort of the logic behind the review is that we have uh, we don't need to be shy about the quality of the people in our research and higher education sector, both the students coming through and the academics working in it. So that's the first thing. But We've got challenges, and we've got challenges because we've created a system that relies on uh, uh, a set of incentives and and uh, and funding that is in the international student realm that then doesn't align with the objectives of um, uh, either what we're trying to do in terms of educating international students, but also to to operate the universities. So, so the inflection point is we've got to work out what that what we what we need to have a a fully functioning effective uh uh, education enterprise to ensure that we can educate uh, our next generation and at the at the scale and with the level of expertise we need so we've got to get education right we've got to recognize and link the research endeavor to to that and to the economy and so we get the settings there right and then if we have and are engaged with international education we have to have that right but we also have to 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 um, ensure that we provide the highest quality international education as well uh, and you know the kind of services that you would expect if you were paying the fees that international students pay um so that we don't um uh you know that, that we fulfill our obligations and i think we've they've kind of all got muddled up and we need to just them and work out uh, which bits of which and what are the right ways of driving each of those um, and not obscuring uh, one objective from the other. If that makes sense, and that's not too yeah, good. no,
0: no, no. I and I I I understand that. And but at, at the end of the day, it's real clarity about the the, the nation building capacity and the intellectual capacity building of research.
1: Yeah. And the problem at the moment is there's too many, uh, there's been too many policy levers or drivers that try and do too many different things at once, you know, and and so so and and then one will override another. So you you once we started introducing values into or or cultural kind of constraints into the income contingent loan system and tried to sort of say well. Um, you know, we're going to give you less money to educate this person than that person or that class of person. It confused the policy levers, it confuses the students and doesn't necessarily achieve what you want. We've had multiple, multiple initiatives over the last 15 years to try and make the universities more relevant to business and engage more with industry and this notion that, you know, they've got to have research that's relevant to their communities. But at the same time, the main... Uh, uh, source of funding for research has been the the premium on international fee revenue, which is driven by international research metrics. So you've got universities responding to that. At the same time, the government's trying to fiddle with the leaders around research, commercialisation or industry engagement. And then similarly, in the education side, rather than reflecting the cost to either the student or the individual, We've got a kind of confused set of metrics and drivers there, so I think it's um, that's why I say we've got to disentangle that. If there are um, uh, trade offs in that, we need to be explicit about what they are, but not think that by fitting with this policy lever over here, you're going to change an outcome over here when there's some overriding consideration that's going to block that out.
0: Well, the The title of these these podcasts has been reimagining higher education and And this is the moment to reimagine it with the accord. what What are some of the elements of a, a reimagining that you would like to see in place? Well, I think it needs to be explicable, right? So you need we need to be able to
1: explain to prospective students what's the value and what will be the value of their education, whether they're domestic international graduate undergraduate postgraduate. And we need to be able to explain to um, Uh, whoever is doing research or undertaking research or commissioning research, uh, what the the value of that is and and, and what it's going to cost, right? And if you try and explain our funding arrangements to anybody outside Australia, you know, you interview someone and they say, well, I'm going to run this school and I'm going to improve the research. And you say, yeah, but the research doesn't pay for itself. So how are you going to actually get international students into your school to generate the income to pay for that research ambition? And, you know, if they come from the UK, the US, Germany, somewhere else, they look at you and go, what do you mean? You know, and so, um, and then we say, well, we want you to do a humanities degree because you're going to be a really good informed citizen who can write and be the policy leaders of the future, but we're going to charge you a lot more for that because the government doesn't like humanities. And they go, well, what does that mean? You know, should I be doing this or not? And so so the the disconnect between... So I would like a system that people working in it understood. Not only can you not explain it to people overseas, we can't explain it to prospective students. Our staff don't fully understand it. So, you know, it would be so much easier to work if everybody understood what the drivers were and what the incentives were and what the policy objectives were. And we've just, it's just got all muddled up.
0: And the, the job ready graduates, which was a, a strong push from, for the previous government. Um, would you see that as uh, being modified?
1: No, I just think we shouldn't start from there. It's that old line: if if this is where we want to if this is where we want to go, we do. we can't start from there. We can't start from the job ready graduates and design a sensible system. You have to start again. And and you know the job ready graduates was a clever piece of policy that enabled the, so that, you know enabled the government to give universities who were quite concerned the security of the funding arrangements. It enabled us, it ensured that we offered more places and it did provide the flexibility to move between undergraduate and postgraduate, which we've been seeking. So they were good things. But it's so, it's now, so you know, so many elements of it don't have a good policy foundation that it's not the right place to start.
0: Mm-hmm. Can we move to student experience? Yeah. And and what, what, for you, is a 21st century student experience. What should it be like and what should students expect? So um,
1: one of the challenges that is they both expect and, and want everything. And so they want 24 seven support. They want to have university tutorials and, and, and opportunities when it suits them. And um, and then they want to have on campus and need to have on campus and, and social dimensions to their learning as well. And, um, it's it, that, so it's a more expensive model to personalise what we can do for students than it has been in the past. The most efficient part of the old system was standing in front of a group of first years and lecturing 400 students. Well, the students have voted with their feet. They don't like that. Um, yep. But that is the most, cost of, the most efficient bit of our business model. So uh, we have to... Um, work out how to make the, and you know, given the proliferation of information and the other uh, resources that are out there, we've got to work out for students, what are the most valued parts of the education that they're receiving. And and that varies, I think, depending on the course, the discipline and the the stage at which they are. So the younger they are or the less mature they are, the more they need the kind of support that you need from the social dimensions of learning and the more um, mature and more experienced you are the more you need the the knowledge the qualification the practical um, components and because not only do students want all of that but they're doing it in an environment where the cost of living is high the level of student support is low and so they're also trying to juggle all of that with uh, work and supporting themselves as well so it's and you know I worked through I wasn't eligible for any student support when I was a student. Um, I had free education, so at least I wasn't worrying about the debt. But I certainly worked the whole time I was a student, but I worked a, I understood what I needed to go to uni for and and where I could work around that. But our students are, you know it's a big juggle, and if you live, you've got to commute because you can't afford to move towards the into the city where you or where your university is. And also, if you don't have great internet at home, which many of our outer metro and regional students don't, um, it's it's complex to to kind of pull all that together. And I think they need um, uh, they want more from the, the more support from the universities than you know just uh, there's your lectures, turn up, get your lab reports in, and I might mark it for you one day. They they want. You know, it's an expensive proposition. They're getting their endless period with a a very good qualification, but also a lot of debt. And I think they quite rightly want more than than we've necessarily been able to provide.
0: So, if you could change one thing, if you could make one intervention to improve the student experience, what what would it be? I think it'd be to um
1: to think about the way we plan our timetables and our work life and the, how we offer in a in a different way that requires quite a lot of transformation, either in the individual institution or in the sector or in our workforce, so that we could, again, a bit like the job-ready graduates, not starting from here to get to this point. If we started, started again and said, I mean, we can't do this, so this is impractical, but just to be able to think about the, the, what about the? What is it about the online resources, the twenty four seven student support that we could provide, or whatever? How could we use that in a way uh, to to better use provide experience for the students while still providing um, uh, you know a, a workable life for our our, our workforce? And that's um, and that requires some quite different out of the box thinking. That I don't think we're going to get there just in this current report, but I think we have to move to that in, in the next mm-hmm.
0: I've got two more questions. Yeah. One is returning to you and the other one is to your, your colleagues. What advice would you give to your younger self? Um,
1: I would join the defined benefit scheme in the superannuation so that when <laughs> I became the vice chancellor, I ended up a lot more financially uh, secure. Uh, 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 <laughs> But that's just a that's a when people say to me you always wanted to be a vice chancellor I said if I'd known that I would have fought to join and to find a Having said that, now what would I give to myself? I think I would um I probably would have been
0: ah um, uh, oh, yes it's hard to know I think I probably
1: would have looked after myself better. You know, I think there are a period when I was working very hard in, at various times where I put my colleagues, my 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 family. Well, gotta put the family first, but my colleagues, my family, my work, and then me last. And I think that meant I probably wasn't always optimizing how I should be and, and how others, uh, how you know, my health. I think that's what I would do. I said, I think I would say. Don't neglect yourself. And I know that's selfish, it sounds selfish, but that's that's important.
0: Oh no, I I, I that's the same advice I'd give to myself too. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> well, I think anybody who's worked really hard at various periods in their lives knows that it takes a toll and you, you realize you've got to step back and look after yourself.
0: So the, the last the last question is um, what would you say to uh, younger and aspiring senior leaders um, in the sector now to prepare them, you know, for the, the next 20 years?
1: So I think I'd be courageous. I'd say, you know, take a few risks, back yourself. Um, and also that it can be an incredibly, um, one of the wonderful things about universities and and, and the research and the science or the Academic and, and intellectual environments we work in is that there's a lot of freedom and there's a lot of really satisfying things about that career that that you know, and security is not the overriding. And so, you know, what I hear a lot from younger academics is: I need security, I need certainty. And I don't think we have that. And I don't think anybody has that. We didn't predict what, none of us could have predicted what was going to happen in the world in the last three or four years. And so I think it's be a bit more courageous about, you know, get on, do you, do whatever you need to do, deliver on that and, and, and back yourself, I guess. And that if you do that, um, then, uh, then, then things sort of work out in the end. Margaret,
0: thank you for giving me 35 minutes of your time on a Friday afternoon. It's been a wonderful conversation and I certainly look forward to catching up with you in a more informal way at some time in the future. Visit studiosity.com slash students for the next Students First Symposium. An open forum for faculty, staff and academics to candidly discuss and progress the issues that matter most in higher education.